Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can live life and at least just a little bit more courage to love the hell out of this world. My name is Reverend Sean and I'm one of your hosts for the podcast. And today on the show, we are diving into the question of generations and service and how they collide together. Now, it's interesting after the service where we heard this message, so many people in the baby boomer generation were expressing how powerful this message was for them. And I have to admit, as a millennial, I was a little like off, caught off guard um, because it, it didn't hit me in an emotional place. Like there was kind of an intellectual reality of this work of service and making sure that we are mentoring a new generation and understanding generational conflicts. But for many of the members of a community who are expressing themselves, to me at least, there was a sense of, I think, really being seen being seen for a stage in life in which the realities of mortality and what you can accomplish, you know, become very apparent. And the rea- and, and what it means to be then an ancestor, a mentor for the next generation, what it means to decenter oneself while still staying in the picture are all really challenging realities. And so I, I saw on, on their faces just just a sense of recognition. And I know and I hope that when you listen to this, you'll, you'll feel that same no matter what generation you are from. To kind of set us up for the message, we're going to hear a poem that, that Gretchen references often in, in her message by the Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye. Now, Naomi is an American born to a Palestinian father and an American mother. And during high school, she actually went back to Palestine to live in Ramallah, the capital city in the West Bank as well as in the old city of Jerusalem. She is a beautiful poet and really is able to find within particular moments a deep human spirit. The poet William Stafford said, her poems combine transcendent liveliness and sparkle along with the warmth and human insight, which I really think captures what she brings so beautifully. So this is her poem, Shoulders. A man crosses the street in rain, stepping gently, looking two times north and south, because his son is asleep on his shoulder. No car must splash him, no car drive too near to his shadow. This man carries the world's most sensitive cargo, but he's not marked. Nowhere does his jacket say fragile, handle with care, his ears fills with breathing. He hears the hum of a boy's dream deep inside him. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we are not willing to do what he's doing with one another. The road will only be wide. The rain will never stop falling. The process of building this building this year has had me thinking more often in longer arcs of time. Many days I found myself just staring at the steel beams and the concrete and the people that are working together, that have been working together to turn what was just not that long ago our hillside into this amazing new structure. I have never really thought of myself as a daydreamer, but sometimes the vision has been so compelling, I can find myself just staring and 
many minutes have suddenly passed. I get caught staring in particular, I can kind of see it from here actually, into the entrance of the sanctuary. That's, I often will just peer over that wood there or sometimes through the back door and just, just stare right there. I stare there because I start to imagine people walking into that sanctuary for the very first time. Not just the first time, like as in our grand opening, that too, of course, but more, I mean, the first times that will happen for people every Sunday and every memorial or every gathering we hold there for justice or every Christmas Eve service. I mean the crossing of the threshold that will mean for many of those people for whom it is their first time, the beginning of belonging like they didn't know they could expect. Belonging and healing, meaning and purpose. I mean the beginning of singing new songs they'd never heard before or sharing in new rituals or coming to call a church, this church, your church, even though you still don't think of yourself as a church person. My favorite part of this vivid scene that is happening all in my head is the fact that the majority of the people who cross that threshold will come after I am gone. Gone from the church, sure, but even after I am gone from this earth. It is the hope after all, the, the promise, the great promise that we are, that all we are doing now will be a gift for those who will come next. Just as this sanctuary has been for many of us. I mean, someone likely got lost staring at this building being built too. As they imagined us, hoped for us to cross the threshold, to receive this gift they've offered, and then to give. The building makes more tangible and obvious what is always true. That is, we receive this chance to serve and give and grow from those who came before, and then we have the chance to pass it on. This is one of the ways that I have come to think of the Jesus story, that story that is present for more people across the globe this week during as Christians celebrate Holy Week. Now, if you grew up Christian, you probably know that Jesus starts his ministry by considering the ways that his message will be passed on. He starts, very beginning of his ministry, he starts by inviting other people to join. He's standing on a lake shore when he notices a couple of boats that are tied up there. There's fishermen there that right next to the boats, two brothers, Peter and Andrew. They've just finished up for the day. They're cleaning out their gear. When Jesus tells them that they need to push out into the deep water and try again. Now, I had to read this. I went back to it this week, and I had to read it a few times because I, I started to wonder, had he met them already? What nerve did he have to tell them, these strangers, get back out there and try again? Peter is like, um, we've been out there all day and all night. We haven't caught anything. Jesus says, push out again 
go to the deep waters. And so they do, and they return then with more fish than their nets can hold. The fishermen's friends, James and John, are nearby. They see that they're amazed. And so Jesus tells them all to leave behind their nets and follow him. And as the phrase goes, this is one that I, if you grew up Christian, again, this might be one that sticks in your head, that they are no longer fishermen, but fishers of men. And they say, okay, and they do. Officially, Jesus recruits 12 people to be his disciples. All men, we're told. A disciple, by the way, um, is a word that literally just means learner. Unofficially, though, Jesus taught and invited people into his mission wherever he went. Many of those included women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and Salome, for example. In each case, Jesus learned from and genuinely loved his disciples. They were his friends, and they were his partners in the great work of love. And when you think about it, the real impact of Jesus's ministry was just simply because of these partners. The ones who learned with him the power of deep, of the deep water, which like most of Jesus's lessons was intended as a metaphor. A metaphor for life that does not stay at the shallow end, but that moves into deeper questions of meaning and purpose, healing and hope. The ones who loved him and who he loved and who took that love and kept passing it on. That, that was actually the biggest impact, not his work, but the relationship he had with them. This is not a lesson that most of us are taught in American culture to believe that our most important work is how we would invite others to carry on the work that matters most to us after we are gone. We understand to a degree the relationship that we have to another generation, but more than inviting them in or teaching them about the great work of our shared humanity, we are more oriented as a culture to protecting them. Like the poem Sean Red says, fragile, handle with care. Banning books and teaching about, anti, about racism, the various versions of don't say gay bills that are going through various state legislatures and bans on gender affirming cares, all of these theoretically are intended to protect our children. Except that after this week of yet another school shooting, even if protection is the right goal, I'm not sure we're doing a very good job of it. Now, more than guns, Gen Z, that is the youngest named generation, they're now age 10 to 26. I'm raising two of them myself. They tend to consider environmental destruction their greatest worry. We aren't doing so well protecting them on that front either. Up until yesterday, Gen Z were 0% of Foothill's official membership. But yesterday, we welcomed our very first Gen Z member. Even if they aren't official members, Gen Z is here in our community. They are our kids and our youth here on Sundays. They're usually here for the 1030. You'd have to hang around a little bit. And they are the young adults who tend to be in a more transient life stage and so may be here for 
a few years of school or early adulthood, which doesn't make this time in our community any less important or this community less meaningful. I found my first UU congregation when I was 23, and the welcome that I received there changed my whole life. More visible in our community are millennials, of course, including about 60% of our staff team, which makes sense as they are the largest group in today's workforce. Millennials are age 27 to 43. They are 60% of staff, but 10% of our Foothills membership. Although if you did attend our 1030 service, you might think I've undercounted that because millennials are often the ones bringing their kids to church which is especially radical for this generation that was often raised without religion and or a very negative view of religion. Many millennials are arrive here in our community stressed by financial insecurity, student debt, medical bills, and most don't believe they'll ever benefit from social security. They also arrive here longing to make a difference and are the most collaboratively oriented of any of the generations. They may not want to join a committee, but millennials very much want to work on things with others on things that matter. Now to continue through this quick generational review, you might also be familiar with Gen X, which are those of us who now are squarely middle age. Between 44 and 58, many of us have teenagers and aging parents who won't admit they are aging. You know who you are. We are in the thick of our careers, which means we are just feeling all of the stresses. Gen X often adds, acts as a bridge generation, translating between the tech-native millennials and the tech-resistant boomers. We tend to be realists, focus on results. We make up about 27% of Foothills membership. After Gen X, we do have the baby boomers, which are probably unsurprisingly half of our Foothills membership. Boomers who range in age now from 59 to 79, not that they're aging, they are a big generation. And having been raised with at least some culture of church, they tend to get what church is about. They, along with the silent generation, have filled committees and showed up for work parties and turned out for legislative advocacy and led small groups and social gatherings for years and still do. The silent generation, sometimes called traditionalists, are today age 80 to 95, and as of right now, they make up a larger percentage of our membership than do millennials, at about 15%. Church is one of the few places in our world today where multiple generations are present at one time. On any given Sunday, we likely have six generations present which means that we are one of the few places where we have the opportunity to practice relationships that intentionally invite mentorship and mutual learning and shared service across generations, where we might feel ourselves a part of that longer arc of time that extends beyond our own lifetime. I have been thinking about this a lot lately because it is an important factor in the daydream I hold about the entrance to that sanctuary. Because for one, it is true 
that we currently have more millennial, more uh, people in the silent generation in our church than we do have millennials. And this, let's acknowledge, is only sustainable to a point. And so I start to wonder how we are fostering intentional relationships across our generations that pass on a way of being and serving that for all of us here today has been our gift. The gift that has allowed us to show up, allowed us right here to show up here and now and receive. It is our gift, and it could be our legacy. It could be if, in whatever way we are serving now, whatever part of the work of love is ours right now, if we are already right now, before it is time, thinking about who we are in relationship with, if we are thinking intentionally about how we are teaching and inviting, mentoring, and partnering, already, all the time, about who will take up this work when our time is done. Even if that is in the far distant future, because it turns out the relationship itself is the joy. The shared learning that happens there is the point and the being in it together becomes our greatest hope. And in case it's not obvious, I don't actually mean done as in when you die. I mean, like just when you're ready to move to a different place in the great work or a deeper place of leadership or a new place of challenge or would you just need to take a break? Or when you need to retire from the role you've been in, which happens even in community and volunteer service. Every Sunday, when I see someone move a chair in this sanctuary, and it, it, I mean, it happens there's some occasion every Sunday for somebody to move a chair, I think about Bill Weddle. Some of you know who I'm talking about when I say the name Bill Weddle. Bill is now 94 and mostly unable to join us on Sundays. But for decades, Bill was the person who set up the chairs on Sunday. He made sure the rows were evenly set, that the aisles were precisely wide enough and accessible. You who set chairs on Sunday may not realize that you are carrying on Bill's work. But if you did, I bet each time you moved a chair, it would mean a little more. Now, Bill, of course, didn't place the chairs carefully because he was obsessed with chairs. He did it because he was obsessed with making a place for you. And by you, of course, I mean whatever you would find in this place, joy and meaning and purpose in the way that he knows and values that only foothills could, the way it did for him and the way that he, so, he wanted so deeply to keep passing on. This is not a simple idea, of course, to intentionally invite others into learning with us and to share in the work, intentionally inviting mentorship 
and mutual learning, but it has never been more important or more challenging. For many reasons, including because the relationship that dif uh, that because of the relationship that different generations tend to have towards institutions, including the church, even the Unitarian Church. Boomers and silent generation folks tend to value institutions as an expression of civic service and duty. They represent a way of being for more than yourself. You can hear this in pretty much every speech that Joe Biden gives this orientation towards institution as a way of being for more than yourselves. Institutions are a good thing. On the other hand, as ethicist Jonathan Cole puts it, the generations coming down the pipeline take a dim view of the legitimacy, utility, and purpose of the institutions that sustained Western civilization until yesterday. Indeed, for many millennials and Gen Zers, the very concept of Western civilization is code for a morally bankrupt, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic regime dedicated solely to serving the interests of a wealthy, white, privileged male elite. Now, like most generational assessments, this binary I'm portraying, is an overgeneralization, and there are plenty of exceptions. But knowing that this difference in how different generations see the institution may be a barrier for relationship and engagement allows this difference instead to become a point of mutual learning and inquiry. So that we can remember that resistance to roles that sound like they are only about preserving an institution likely comes from a deep ethical concern allows us to get curious about how to more fully connect our internal community work to justice and healing in the wider community and in the world. With intention and awareness and a real desire to go into deep waters together, rather than just teach each other a checklist of tasks to complete, generational differences can be a starting point for mutual learning and exploration as we seek to build communities and systems that transform rather than perpetuate oppression. Now, with all this being said, I want to note that mentorship need not have anything to do with age or be unidirectional from older to younger. Some of my greatest teachers have been people younger than I am. Besides, the average age of the people who joined in this last year is 64. And, on the other hand, the average age of members who joined five years ago is right now 60. So being an elder can apply to anyone, regardless of what generation you fall into, including relationships that are peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, remember, Jesus was about 30 when he invited his disciples to join him, and all of them were likely in their late teens and early 20s. When we talk about caring for one another and the ways that we can be of service to each other and to a greater purpose, we too often get caught on the image offered at the beginning of the poem that Sean read. Remember, it goes, a man crosses the street in rain, stepping gently, looking two times. 
No car must splash him, no car drive too near, carrying his son on his shoulder. We get caught on this as if caring for one another is only literally doing the work of carrying one another to safety. We forget the second part of the story. That is that moment when the man's ear fills up with the breathing as he hears the hum of the boy's dream deep inside him. We forget that our greatest work is to make space for another's dream, to be filled with another's joy as we teach and learn and share in the work together, as we imagine the work that will go on after we are gone. We forget that our most important task could be to set chairs out for all the yous that are yet to come, to invite each other again and again into the deep water. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do this with one another. The road will only be wide. The rain will never stop falling. So this is our task now more than ever, not, to just, not just to find new ways to keep picking up the great work of love, but even more to find the ways to keep passing this work on. May it be so, and amen. Find our place in this great generational dance is, oh, it's not easy. And what I particularly loved in Gretchen's message is lifting up the ways that different generations bring, you know, different ethical critiques and worldviews that that often are actually rooted in similar values, but those values are operationalized in very different ways. And so how can we use those differences as an opportunity for relationship building, understanding, especially in the church? You now, it's one of the parts of church that I love so much is that I get to hang out with people who are so different in age than me. And so many of my friends don't have that experience. They are only around um, people in meaningful ways that are around their age socially, or maybe at work they're exposed to different generations. But in the church, I get to high-five a, a five-year-old in the morning and you know, have many conversations with our millennial members and then turn and talk to some of our elders, elders and even members of the silent generation. There's a real beauty in it. And there's also this invitation for us to see our work as in the long arc of time. And that part of our invitation is to, to see the ancestors that we can become in this moment. I want to end today with a testimonial that was offered in in the service by one of our members, Deanna Vanderdose, who is a part of our climate justice ministry. And I'm sharing it because just the evocative image that she shares about how we are to find our place in this great movement towards justice, especially around climate, it, it captivated something in me that I hope it will in you. So we're going we're gonna to end with that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Everything that we do at Foothills is possible because you all support this work. We'd love it if you 
uh, got in touch. If you are not connected to our community, but listen to our podcast, we love hearing from you. If you are in the position to make a financial donation, that helps us make sure that we can do this every single week. Next week, you're going to be hearing uh, our message around Easter, which is a part of our new Act of Hope series, taking inspiration from the work of Joanna Macy, deeply um, invested in systems, ecology, and Buddhist thinking, how we love a hurting and dying world as we turn towards new ways of seeing the world that fuel us in connection, but also in commitment to transformation. Here's Diana. My name is Diana Vanderdoes, and I'm a member of the Climate Justice Ministry. I would like to start with some words by Kathleen Dean Moore. We are all members of a great human orchestra, and it is now time to play the Save the World Symphony. You don't have to play a solo, but you have to know the instrument you hold and find your place on the score. It's true. Each of us has a part to play in the last ditch scramble to prevent climate catastrophe. How exciting it will be when the conductor taps her baton on the podium and on the downbeat, we all begin to rehearse. But wait a minute. If this is a symphony, where's the score? How can I get my hands on a copy? Do we even have time to rehearse? I would love to play in this symphony. I would be nervous, of course, afraid I would hit a wrong note or blat out in the wrong place. But think of the power of this sound, all of us playing together. And I know other concerned citizens are hungry for the chance to play in any Save the World Orchestra. Just tell me what to do, they beg in the Q&A, and I will do it. But here's the problem with that symphony. It doesn't exist and no one is going to compose it. This isn't a symphony we have to play. This is an all-out improvisational jazz session with all of its risks and surprise and power to shake the air. No score, no practice sessions, no going back to try it again. We are going to have to make it up as we go along. The greatest exercise of improvisational imagination that the planet has ever seen. So how in the heck are we going to pull this off? When I first joined CJM, it was a very different experience from the years that I had spent as a foot soldier for other green organizations. There was no real top-down hierarchy, no clear marching orders, clear structure or obvious goals, just a gathering of smart, good-hearted people who wanted to make a difference on climate. In our CJM group, there are scientists and poets, pragmatists and creatives, cynics and optimists. Initially, I wondered if there was a glue that could hold us together. I slowly came to understand that the glue was the covenant of courageous love that first inspired me to become a member of this church. The belief that what we do is not nearly as important as how we do it. The guiding principle that we each have a piece of the truth and that together we can reach more clarity and understanding than any of us could alone. 
And lastly, the one radical idea that I hope to spend the rest of my activist days understanding and deepening, the truth that love, care, and community is regeneration, is the change that is needed to heal our beautiful planet. CJM is still an improvisation and such a beautiful one. Activism and service is such a joy when you're doing it with people that you love. This ground below us, this ground below us, is holy, holy, is holy, holy. This air that breathes us, Mercy, mercy, 